According to Lewis Bornheim, a crisis is a situation in which a previously tolerable set of circumstances is suddenly, by the addition of another factor, rendered wholly intolerable. Whether the additional factor is political, economic, or scientific hardly matters. The death of a national hero, the instability of prices, or a technological discovery can all set events in motion. In this sense, Gladstone was right. All crises are the same. So says Michael Crichton in our book this month, The Andromeda Strain, here on Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. Excited to uh, talk about one of my favorite childhood authors with you today, Gordon. Do you think that Michael Crichton's work has aged well? Uh, it has aged, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here with uh, my copy from junior high. It's one of those, uh, I think, when they re-released all the Michael Crichton books when Jurassic Park came out. It's got that wonderful foil-stamped, embossed covering that was so popular in the decade. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my middle school signature right there on the inside cover. Ooh, that is terrible penmanship. It really is bad. And I have very fond memories of this book. In fact, up until rereading it, I considered it one of my favorite books. I, I think it still holds up, but you just got to kind of approach it for what it is. Well, what it is is a pseudoscientific look at what happens when a virus, a bacteria, it isn't clear at the beginning exactly mm-hmm. what it is, comes to Earth in a crisis, and that a group is assembled in order to investigate what to do about this before it invariably could kill the entire human race. So I think that the perfect place to be discussing this is here at the Stardust Lounge, which was originally conceived as a fallout shelter. And it actually explains a great deal of the decor here. But it ends up that most of the staff here has read this book. In fact, it used to be the employee handbook, which is a very strange (laughs) choice. But it's saved on money with HR. That explains the suppositories that they make us take on level four. Yes, and the weird wall coloring in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, we are uh, drinking a cocktail right now that our lovely hostess, Crystal, created for us, specific for this novel. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so Crystal put this concoction together, and it is called Baby Tears and Sterno. For those of you who've read the book, you'll understand what the joke is here. It seems to be some kind of strange combination of what I think is Everclear, and then also maybe some non-alcoholic Amaros? I think that's what it is. She didn't say, but I actually am somewhat concerned that there is Sterno in here. (laughs) It's not commonly found behind most bars, but again, we love the Stardust because it doesn't play by the rules. How is it safe to say it's been 20 years at least since you've read this? Yeah, I'd say it's it's about 20 years. Yeah, that's. I, I think I probably read it when I was like 13 maybe, 12 or 13. I can see why I loved it as a kid. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it is very fast-paced, but then also tries to teach you some fun little facts along the way, whether those facts are accurate or not. Uh, yeah. Whether they were in uh, 1969 when this novel was written, I- I'm not sure. But those, some of those haven't aged super well. But I can see why I enjoyed it as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's it, that kind of, as you said, like faux intellectualism is very interesting when you're a 12 or 13-year-old just trying to navigate the world. It's very engrossing, right? It goes along mm-hmm. at quite a clip. I think uh, before we started rolling, you'd called it kind of a cotton candy of the mind type of thing, Mm -hmm. which I thought was a really interesting way to describe the prose in this, because there's some really neat passages, some great moments of tension, some really remarkable, indelible images, you know, that 
ghostly figure of the old man in the white robe in a town full of dead people, right? Mm-hmm. There's some really nice things. Just like that first bite of cotton candy is very sweet and, you know, electrifying, but then it quickly fizzles if you try to dig any deeper. And I, I think that's probably what we're going to find as we talk about Andromeda Strain, but I really appreciated your take on that. Well, there are so many good images here, and we do get this nice beginning of the book where it plays out like you would imagine a crisis does play out, where mm-hmm. you've got a crazy, out-of-the-ordinary event which occurs and then this panic rush in order to get people together, in order to actually go address the issue, to figure out what the hell is going on. And what we start to learn about is this thing called wildfire, which the founder of this project, who is Dr. Jeremy Stone, had argued that the world was at risk due to bacteria being brought back to Earth by a space probe or Uh, as part of the manned space program, and so had established this organization that could somehow come together very quickly in order to go solve a problem. And here is a Nobel Prize-winning young scientist, or he got the Nobel Prize when he was quite young. For work he did when he was in law school, kind of as like a side hobby, because Mm -hmm. who doesn't get the Nobel Prize that way? Exactly. So, super smart guy, he goes and gets funding for this, and in many ways it gets funded well beyond the dreams of anyone involved. It was this huge project. And as we learned through the course of this novel, that while he had created this organization in order to save the world from a terrible thing happening, that it may be that this whole thing got caused anyhow because the government was trying to research bioweapons. And that's why this piece of rock or whatever it was got brought back to Earth in the first place that set off the series of events. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I had forgotten, actually, about the novel. I remember really being engrossed with the idea of a sci-fi novel that took the approach, hey, the most common form of extraterrestrial life that we'll likely to encounter are going to be microbial. Mm -hmm. And, And I thought that that was such an interesting concept as a kid, and I think that just really fascinated me. I had completely forgotten that, yeah, this might have been something that was intentionally snagged from outer space for very nefarious purposes. So this reread as an adult lends itself to a lot of maybe darker undertones than I think I recalled from my first read through. Well, we get these dystopic science fiction outer space images. Of course, we get the source of the bacteria in the first place. But we also get the wildfire lab. which is based in a small parcel of land just outside of Las Vegas. And I believe the town is... Flat Rock? Yes, Flat Rock. And in many ways, it is a space station. It's a space station on Earth, and you can almost imagine it being, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey Mm -hmm. kind of space station, the way that that's laid out. Because in many ways, it is that. It's this five-story underground bunker that is protected by laser defenses and has all of the technology that was pretty out of the ordinary and futuristic when we think, again, that this book was written in 69. Yeah, it's an extraordinary set piece that is equal parts space station and submarine. And one of the things that I noticed in this reread through, perhaps lending too much literary gravitas to what is essentially a genre fiction novel, but one of the things that really intrigued me is the the concept of those different colored floors, Mm -hmm. those different colored levels. And I recall uh, one of Edgar Allan Poe's most famous short stories, also about people going underground to avoid a plague, 
The Mask of the Red Death. And for those of you who might remember it from high school or something like that, in The Mask of the Red Death, there's all these antechambers that are each coated a different color. And the deeper mm. you go, the richer the color scheme gets. And it was Poe's way of kind of showing the human mind as it goes through isolation and the human mind as it tries to escape its problems. I can't help but wonder if that wasn't at least a little bit inspired here, whether Crichton intended his 12 or 13 year old audience at the time to actually grasp that, I'm not sure, but the parallels are pretty striking. Yeah, I don't know. I doubt that Poe was influenced by Crichton's work though. Uh, You have not read Michael Crichton's great novel Timeline then. Ah about time travel, you will find that, in, in fact... That is exactly what happened. You okay. know, speaking of Michael Crichton kind of inserting himself into narratives where he doesn't belong, mm-hmm. uh, I also didn't remember that basically the narrator of this novel is Michael Crichton. I don't know if you picked up on that, but there is, right at the beginning, an acknowledgement that many people will just skip over, but the acknowledgement itself is actually fiction, mm-hmm. writing about these uncovered documents from the Wildfire Project. And it's signed MC, which I can only assume is Michael Crichton himself, who is narrating this fictional novel for us. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So in this first episode, I think it would be good to dig into the characters here. Mm-hmm. We've got four primary characters who are all men, which is interesting. You compare it against the film in which we have one of the scientists is played by a woman. There's two films, right? There's the one from, I can assume, the 70s mm-hmm. based on the visuals of it. But then I think there was like a made-for-TV movie one, too. I never saw it. I'm speaking of the one from the 70s. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they, they did throw a woman in there, which was a nice thing. When the world needs saving, though, who else are you going to call but four cisgendered straight men? That seemed to be Crichton's hypothesis. But we're going to get to that in the next episode (laughs) when we talk about a little something that is very misogynistic called the odd man hypothesis. A little something that's going to dictate our lives from here on out. I hope not. (laughs) You know, there is a fifth character. They keep referring to this guy, Crikey or something. Mm -hmm. The guy who was like out for like an appendectomy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We don't know how he identified. So he may well have been the more interesting, more diverse inclusion choice. Mm hmm. So we spoke a little bit ago about Jeremy Stone. What other thoughts do you have about him? I mean, at the surface, he's this, you know, just brilliant guy and Nobel Prize winner. One of those conveniently almost too brilliant characters that you see in fiction. You know, one of the things, I think we'll talk about this over the course of the next couple episodes, because this is a genre piece, there isn't much subtext. I think that's an overstatement. There is no subtext. <laughs> that saying some is giving him way too much credit. I just found a Mask of the Red Death analogy in this thing, so I don't know what you're talking about. But I do think a lot of times, because of the nature of the prose, Michael Crichton just kind of comes out and tells you what he wants you to know about the characters. What are mm-hmm. their key core defining characteristics? And I think we get some very interesting sentences as a result on masculinity, including this one about Stone, where Crichton describes his chief characteristic as the feeling that he can, his a sense of impatience, a feeling that, quote, he conveyed to everyone that they were wasting his time. And I can't help but feel like this is described as somewhat of a virtue, or at least a symbol of this man's intellect, that he just is constantly interrupting people and finishing their thoughts for them. That's obviously a huge character flaw, but I feel like in the course of this novel, it's almost lifted up as a virtue of this highly intelligent man who is just, you know, too smart for everybody else, and here's one interesting quirk about his intelligence. So I think this is one of the character tropes of the Crichton verse, if you will. Mm. Uh, think of Jeff Goldblum's character sure. from Jurassic Park. I can't imagine. Dr. Ian Malcolm. I mean, this is exactly what I would say for him, except I think Jeremy Stone had a 
shirt, which was buttoned most of the time, <laughs> uh, which is very different from Ian Malcolm. But yeah, I think that this is a character type trope, whatever you want to say, that Crichton admires. Also interesting to note, uh, Jeremy is uh, whisked away from that uh, academic house party that he's hosting, leaving mm-hmm. his, you know, uh, put-upon wife to deal with the mess, and he very creepily gives her no indication of where he's going or what he's doing, which I understand there's national security involved, but I think spouses are excluded from that. I mean, I would just say Jezebel's <laughs> and be gone. Harkening back to The Handmaid's Tale, which we reviewed last month. One of the interesting things I noted was, rather derisively, which is strange for the tone of this narration, he's described as being on his fourth wife. Several of his previous wives had also been the uh, wives of former colleagues. Mm-hmm. I thought that I was interesting, that. given that our author, Michael Crichton, himself was married five times, twice two wives of former colleagues. That is a great point. So you're saying he's both the narrator and the primary <laughs> character. You wouldn't expect anything else from the Crichton verse. Is there anything the man cannot play? <laughs> Got uh, three other main characters. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, is it Dr. Peter Levitt? Yeah, whose chief characteristic, according to the novel, seems to be pessimism. In fact, he's quoted as saying, At my wedding, all I could think about was how much alimony she was going to cost me. Mm-hmm. These are just delightful men. Men you want to spend time five miles underground with for mm-hmm. perhaps all of eternity, or at least until the atomic bomb detonates. And with a secret, undiagnosed, epileptic condition, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. Which is a major plot point in the conclusion of the novel, which, I don't know, to me it kind of feels super forced, but there it is. I mean, he does foreshadow it continuously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't come as a surprise. Yes. But at the same time, not a terribly interesting character. I think Jeremy Stone is much more engaging, at Mm -hmm. least quirky in his own way. Peter, a little bit less. And we've also got Charles Burton. Yeah, who's like kind of this befuddled, frumpy, professorial type. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stone himself uh, is put off by him, questions his hygiene often. Well, I was put off by him, too, because... One of the bits of data that we get about him, Crichton, who just doesn't bother with anything but just straight-up exposition, said that he taught at a school with a very subpar college basketball program. I'm speaking, of course, of Baylor, and just just terrible. So I had no respect for this man. Why were shots just fired at Baylor? They're not even a traditional rival to your alma mater. Because they were destroyed by Carolina in the quarterfinal rounds of this year's NCAA tournament. So you are just beating down an opponent that was already beaten down to begin with. How very Jeremy Stone of you. Why, thank you. No, no, no. I, I mean, I have to call it out because Carolina basketball is amazing. And uh, they, they won the national championship, yeah? No, they didn't. Oh, uh-huh. huh. Yeah, they, <laughs> they did beat Duke, and that's really what matters. <laughs> Anyhow, so Charles Burton... He is a pathologist and who studied the impact of bacteria on human tissues. And in fact, there's an interesting scene during the conclusion of this where you know he kind of like throws out all of the reason of his own research and wants to destroy all the bacteria in his body, even knowing what that would cause. I think we'll talk more about yeah. that later, but I think that the fact that came from him is rather intriguing. Yeah, very much so. And then we finish off with Hall, who is described, again, very affably as a swift-tempered and unpredictable surgeon. 
the best kind of surgeon. Is that true? <laughs> Being a surgeon, though, he knows a lot about electrolytes. Yeah, this is true. The, I, you know, when I'm putting together a crack team to deal with an unknown space entity, I'm going to want to have someone on the team who understands the impact of electrolytes, particularly on plants, because we know from Brondo that plants crave electrolytes. That is a very well-timed idiocracy reference you just made. Well, that's what Literary Guys is all about. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he's an interesting character. You know, he very implausibly feels like he's on the team. I think Stone even mentions that he would much prefer a microbiologist or something like that. Mm -hmm. And who wouldn't? And so then you've just got this surgeon who doesn't seem very interested in the project, doesn't read any of his briefings, really has no idea what wildfire is actually about, and at one point even states that there are far better surgeons in his field than him, to which I think it's um, Levitt then says, yes, but they're all married. Mm -hmm. Which is foreshadowing (laughs) the next episode. So one of the things that we see from a literary perspective is that Dr. Hall is used as a literary device Mm -hmm. to help tell the story of wildfire. Right. Yeah, it's helpful to have that character who's a little bit in the dark so Mm -hmm. that you don't have that really awful trope that you see in a lot of genre fiction where two characters are telling each other things that they already know. Mm -hmm. Because that never happens in real life and happens all the time in fiction. So I appreciate that Crichton was able to kind of more organically weave that in. And I really do, you know, we might harp on this novel a little bit, but I really do appreciate how organically Crichton does everything. It is such an easy read, and I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, it is just swift, it gets its hooks in you, and pulls you along for the ride. And I think that there's definitely some skill there. There isn't moments of clunky prose that kind of got in the way, except for maybe like the satellite scoop mm-hmm. calls with Vandenberg. That, that can get a little arduous to read through, but I'm sure I ate it up as a kid. So what do I know? But yeah, it is a really effective tool to have Hall kind of be in the dark, despite the fact that it might not be super realistic. Well, speaking of organic transitions, do we have a sponsor for today's episode? We do indeed. So actually uh, reached out to just some magazines to see kind of how they're getting some of their advertising revenue. And mm-hmm. uh, USA Today was like, hey, we do all these like little small town physician highlights all the time. So maybe you can make a quick buck there. So uh-huh. we're going to be doing that for this episode. Serving Piedmont, Arizona for over 20 years, Dr. Alan Benedict is proud to be considered the most trusted and learned mind in the community. Dr. Allen is kept busy by seeing a total of 49 patients annually and credits his strong work ethic to years in military service with the boys of the 87th. Dr. Benedict lives with his wife and his depressed model airplane enthusiast son, and when not working, he enjoys tinkering with satellites what falls from the heavens. He is a fascinating plot device. He just, like, picks the thing up and, like... (laughs) Or, or wait, no, no, wait, no. Someone brings it to him, and then he opens it up? You, that funky thing from space, you've got, you got to bring it to the doctor. He's going to know what it is. Mm-hmm. And then he just, like, wrenches it open with, like, a pliers. And that ended well. You know, his fate is, of course, having a very bloodless autopsy on his own uh, office floor. So That is true. So, I mean, he's got that going for him. <laughs> so we've got this cast of characters here, and... I think in the end, they're effective in telling the story. But in other ways, I do feel like they're a bit interchangeable. Like, 
Yeah. The, the various things that happen throughout this book, it basically is like Crichton saying, I want this person to have this happen to them, and this thing happen to this other person. It doesn't feel that a lot of their specialties or the things that make them unique individuals and characters really play that much into the roles that they actually have here. Like The, the things that people do is they either are trying to save the lab from being blown up, or they're trying to recover from an epileptic fit or they're trying to to discern data from an experiment which no one had ever done before. In many ways, Crichton points out that mistakes were made. I think that's actually one of the intriguing bits here of all these like smart characters that they did make mistakes. And again, going to have to compare this periodically to Jurassic Park, that in Jurassic Park, it was the hubris of the scientists that ultimately was their downfall. And I think in this novel, it's more of the self-assuredness. For there is an inherent drama in the story of Andromeda. And if it is a chronicle of stupid, deadly blunders, it is also a chronicle of heroism and intelligence. Well, I think that is a great quote to wrap up the book. Nature finds a way. No, that's Jurassic Park again. Okay, we got to keep these straight. Anyhow, I want to thank the Stardust as always. I want to thank our listeners. Please, if you haven't subscribed or left us a review on one of the major sites for podcasts, please go ahead and do so. We'll be back next week talking about the odd man hypothesis. Until then, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.